Welcome to the BJJ Tab Podcast. I'm your host, Mose Jones Yellen. I'm a purple belt training at Team Link in Hooksit, New Hampshire. Team Link! This is episode one of my podcast. The main topic of today's show, and I had to put some thought into this, you know, it's, it's the first episode. I Pressure. I've got to kick it off with something Pressure. good. So the main topic of today's show is going to be a discussion about the fundamentals of takedowns. And I've, I've come around to this idea that there are really only two types of takedowns in grappling. What? And I'm going to spend a good chunk of this episode explaining that idea. Two. Hopefully there'll be some nuggets in the mix that will be interesting, helpful for other grapplers out there. And then, just for fun, I'm going to round out the episode with a little story uh, about this one time I saw Scary Carrie Kennison. And Scary she's a, Carrie. She's a MMA fighter, trains at my gym. I saw her tap out a competitor with this crappy little ankle lock Ooh. in the tiebreaker rounds tap. at a local sub-only tournament. So, Gotta get the tap. I'm a little nervous, but let's get started. Hear that funk, baby. So episode one, we're talking about takedowns. And uh, as I've been writing up my notes for this segment, I've realized that a lot of my thinking about takedowns comes from outside Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. My intro to grappling came as a kid through Judo. Judo. Both my parents have been martial artists for as long as I can remember. And Judo was their thing when I was a kid. And it's still kind of my dad's thing. Unfortunately, I didn't embrace it at the time. And that's probably in large part because they were so into it. And I was hard-headed. But I was still hanging around the mats a few times a week and... I took classes off and on for a lot of my early childhood. And then when I was in high school, maybe 15 or 16 or so, Puberty. I got talked into joining the wrestling team. And I still don't really know how that happened, but I did that for a season. Hard work. Uh, and that's really where a lot of my grappling habits come from. Dabbling in kids-level judo and wrestling for a season in high school. And this was a massive advantage when I got into jiu-jitsu. But that didn't actually happen until I was in my 30s. And by that time, I'd become a civil engineer. A lot of my thinking about grappling concepts, my approach to learning stuff has been shaped by my background in engineering. Got education. My ideas about how our bodies work and how grappling techniques work and the principles that jump out at me and whatnot is definitely a byproduct of the engineering training that I had in college and the sort of work that I'm doing nine to five. In regards to how the upcoming discussion is organized, I'll be starting first with the definition of a takedown, and I'm going to present this idea that there were two fundamental types of takedowns in the grappling world. Still talking about two takedowns? The push and trip takedowns and the lift and dump takedowns. Push and trip? Push and trip, lift and dump. Lift and dump. And I'll go a bit deeper into the mechanics of these two categories and identify some concepts that might be useful for understanding how these takedowns work and and how we can improve and refine our own techniques. Sharpen the blade. And along the way, I'm going to be describing positions and movements, which is always tough without visuals, but um, I hope that I can do a good job of explaining myself. I think I can, and I hope it'll be helpful and interesting for folks. Hopefully. This is certainly, this is certainly not the only way to think about this stuff, but it's a way of thinking about takedowns that I haven't heard anyone else use. And I think it might be helpful. Contribute to the discussion. So I'm going to take a crack at it. And uh, let's get started. Uh. 
So what is a takedown? Let's let's get that out of the way first. Um, a definition that I think most people would agree on consensus is that a takedown is an action involving two people. It begins on the feet, right, and it occurs when one athlete takes their opponent from a standing position to lying on the mat. Yeah. I can agree with that. Depending on the grappling style and the rule set, there are nuances to this definition. Um, and in competition, there are various uh, variations that score different points. Various variations? In jiu-jitsu, if it's IBJJF rules, you'll get two points for the takedown. Two points? And you can take a player down to their back or to their belly either way. Uh, and you've got to control your opponent on the mat for three seconds for it to count. One, two, three... Points, ref, points. Which is a major thing. Being able to secure that takedown uh, is one of the things that differentiates jiu-jitsu from other arts. If it's ADCC rules and you land in guard, it's two points. If you land past the guard, it's four points. If it's sub only, there are no points involved, but you've put yourself in an advantageous position and you can work from there. And in other arts, like judo, could be ipon. Ipon. Could be the end of the match, period. And there's, there's no need to establish control. There's, no, there's nothing. If you've put him on the floor with authority... It's over. It's over. It's over. The takedown in judo is king. It's the same way the submission is king in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or the knockout is king in boxing. In wrestling, the emphasis is not on the takedown. The emphasis is on the pin. But the takedown is super valuable. And you'll score anywhere from two to five points, depending on the amplitude. When it comes to instruction and training... Judo and wrestling have different ways of grouping their takedown techniques. In judo, the Kodokan, Kodokan. Uh, which is like the worldwide judo headquarters, formally recognizes four types of throws. What are they? There are hip throws, there are hand throws, leg throws, and there are sacrifice throws. Four different groups, three of them identified by the body part that's primarily involved in executing the technique, and the last group, the sacrifice throw, is where the attacker's body hits the floor before their opponent's. Yeah. That makes sense. Wrestling is less codified. There's nothing as codified as judo. Typically, in wrestling, your coach will divvy up takedown techniques into upper body attacks and lower body attacks. Or they'll teach a bunch of techniques that serve as either entries or finishes. Entries being maybe arm drags or shots or duck unders, those, those sorts of things. And the finishes might be something like double legs double or leg. inside trips or running the pipe. There are a whole host of moves that can fit both these categories, entries and finishes. And the idea is to string these techniques together until your opponent hits the floor. Chain wrestling. As I've gained more experience grappling, it's been helpful for me to think about all these varied takedowns as falling into either one of two groups. The push and trip group. Push and trip. And the lift and dump group. Lift and dump. And those names, push and trip versus lift and dump, uh, they're just shorthand to help me keep things straight in my head. The criteria is, is obviously a bit more detailed than that. Better be. The push and trip group includes takedowns where the attacking athlete exerts an off-balancing force on the defending player. An off-balancing force? And an off-balancing force is a force that's strong enough to require the defensive player to reposition their feet if oh. they want to remain upright. And that force might be either a push or a pull. The second half of the push and trip is, you know, surprise, surprise, the trip. And a trip is anything that prevents the other person from repositioning their support structure. That's a precise definition of a trip, bro. The push requires them to reposition. The trip prevents them from repositioning. 
and they fall. You have a takedown. When you're standing, your supporting structure is the legs and the feet. But when you're on the mat, the same push and trip concept applies to sweeps and breakdowns where the supporting structure might be rooted in the hands or the knees or whatever body parts are in contact with the floor. Just say base. There are obvious techniques that come to mind for this push and trip group, like foot sweeps, inside and outside trips. But this group also includes knee taps and double legs and whatnot, and the push and trip takedowns are the bread and butter of most people's stand-up game. The path to proficiency is generally easier for push and trip techniques than it is for the lift and dump group. The lift and dump group includes those high amplitude throws, which in wrestling, it means stuff like suplexes and lateral drops and fireman's carries and that sort of thing. And this category involves techniques where instead of a push or a pull, there's a lift. Instead of applying a horizontal off-balancing force, the attacking player applies a vertical force elevating their opponent's center of mass, catching air, substituting their own body to become their opponent's supporting structure, and then removing that supporting structure and propelling their opponent to the floor. With authority. These takedowns work best when you're able to bring your center of mass directly beneath your partner's center of mass, and the strength of your legs provides the lift, while the dexterity of your upper body redirects them back to the floor. Hmm. These are, like I said, high-amplitude throws, highlight reel takedowns Five points. that leave no question about who has the upper hand. E-pom. There's also a subset of the lift-and-dump takedowns where instead of fully elevating your opponent and becoming their entire support structure, you find a way to insert yourself as a portion of their support structure and then dump them from there. And you see examples of this sometimes when a wrestler gets, gets ankle-picked and their leg is elevated and they're, they're hopping around on one foot the opponent, the attacking player, has become part of the defending player's support structure. A person would have a really hard time holding their foot in the air like that and hopping around uh, if there wasn't someone else lifting their leg. Sometimes sweeping the standing leg works great from here, but that, that falls into the push and trip category. Push and trip? You can also run the pipe, in which case the attacking player takes firm control of the elevated leg you know, usually working their way up towards the thighs so that they've got a more direct influence on the defensive player's center of mass. And when you run the pipe, you don't lift the center of mass like you would in a classic lift and dump. But you do, with the quickness, you pivot back, switching from supporting the elevated leg to dragging the leg backwards and driving the defensive player's butt and center of mass down to the floor. Sort of a partial lift followed by a dump. Another good example of this subset happens with collar ties. A strong attacking player might secure a heavy collar tie and drag their opponent's stance low, exerting a ridiculous amount of forward pressure. If the defending player wants to resist this pressure, and they have to, or else they'll be driven off the mat, they'll adjust their feet back, they'll dig in, and they'll match that forward pressure with their own force. This is a better example. And this creates a scenario where the athletes are relying on each other to support their combined body weight. If either person were to suddenly disappear, the remaining grappler would faceplant. Mm. This is a scenario where snapdowns become super effective. The player with the initiative, the player with the inside control, can jerk their opponent downward as they simultaneously step backwards out of the way, removing themselves from the support structure. This drops a defending player to their hands and knees, and in some rule sets, this doesn't fit the precise definition of a takedown. Yeah. But it's definitely a bad turn of events. They're open for front headlock attacks. Guillotine. Back is completely exposed, and in that moment, they're decidedly on the defensive. 
So, to my mind, those are the two fundamental types of takedowns. The push and trip, and the lift and dump. With a subset for the partial lift and dump, which is more like a support and dump. Partial lift, full dump. And that covers 99% of the takedowns that you'll see in any grappling match. I hesitate to say that it covers every takedown out there, but I haven't found anything that doesn't fit those two groups in one way or another. Maybe when uh, this episode goes public, someone will reach out to me with something I've overlooked, and I'll look forward to that. Oh, someone's going to find an example. Okay. So let's talk a bit more about the mechanics of these two about, types of takedowns. Oh, and I just thought of Some concepts that can help us improve our technique. And when it comes to improving our technique, let's think of better technique as movements that consistently get the results we're looking for with as little effort as possible. Talk about small man jujitsu. I've already mentioned this off-balancing force, and that name gives a pretty good idea of what I'm talking about. I said earlier that an off-balancing force is a push or a pull that's strong enough to require your opponent to reposition their feet if they want to stay upright. And that's, that's a good working definition. But if I put on my little engineer's hat and I think to myself, well, forces have both a magnitude and a direction, you talking about vectors? And if we're smart about the direction we choose when we apply the force, we can cut down on the magnitude of force required to accomplish our goals. That would be an improvement in technique. So, somewhere along the line, I learned that if I want to topple a stationary object, I have to apply a strong enough force to move its center of mass beyond the outer edge of its supporting structure, beyond the edge of its Ooh, base. Finally, I've been trying to tell you it's just called base. The position where the center of mass crosses that invisible line, that's the tipping point. If I can move an object's or a person's center of mass beyond that tipping point, you talking about Malcolm Gladwell? Then gravity takes over, and the person's own weight will cause them to fall. Most of us know this instinctively, even if we can't put it into words. You can picture yourself trying to tip over a refrigerator. It's big, it's heavy, and it takes a lot of force just to get it tipped up on its edge, and if you're pushing and pushing, and it only tips up an inch or two, as soon as you let go, it'll rock back to its original position. You have to push it beyond the tipping point. Watch your toes. You have to exert enough force to move the refrigerator's center of mass, that hypothetical point right in the middle of the three-dimensional shape. We know what a center of mass is. To move that point until it passes through the invisible plane at the edge of its base. Then, it'll come crashing down without any more help. Bam! But for our purposes, we're not pushing refrigerators. We're pushing people. And people stand on two feet. They might stand square. They might stand staggered. They might be heavy on one foot or crouching low or whatever. But they're on their two feet. And their feet are typically placed at shoulder width, maybe a little bit wider. And the human stance is unstable. Always. That's just the price of having only two feet. Mm -hmm. Our stances will always have a strong axis and a weak axis. What do you mean? If you draw an imaginary line between a person's feet, that line will represent the strong axis. If you exert a force on the person in the same direction as that strong axis, yeah. push or pull, the person will have an easier time resisting your force. Say you're standing shoulder to shoulder with your buddy, you start leaning against them. They'd have no problem supporting your weight, okay. up to a point. You're pushing along their strong axis. The weak axis is perpendicular to the strong axis. If you stand with your shoulder against your buddy's back, sort of a, a T-shape. 90 degrees. When you lean into them, they'll stumble forward almost immediately. The force you're applying is aligned with their weak axis. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. If you want your off-balancing forces to be as effective as possible, if you really want to force them to reposition their feet, you'll train yourself to push and pull along your opponent's weak axis. Hmm. As things progress, you'll become habitually aware of that imaginary line between your opponent's feet. You'll develop movements and non-committal setups that manipulate your opponent into shifting their stance. Each stance shift, each repositioning of their feet, is an opportunity for a push-and-trip takedown. Easy peasy. Easy peasy? The lift and dump is a different situation. With lift and dump techniques... Lift and dump? We're no longer concerned with off-balancing forces and tipping points. Now we're thinking about the best ways to elevate our opponent off the floor. We're thinking about applying vertical forces. Vertical forces. If you want to get the most bang for your buck, the most lift for the least amount of effort... The force needs to be applied from directly below or directly above the object's center of mass. Imagine that you needed to change a flat tire on the side of the road, and you're jacking the car up. Yeah, that happens. Usually, you place the jack beneath the point along the outside edge of the car, and as the jack rises, the car would tip up on the opposite two wheels, right? Always. But if you wanted to lift the car completely to take all yeah. four tires off the pavement, you'd place the jack beneath the car's center of mass and push straight up. The same principles apply in grappling. If you want to lift someone off the mat, and you really don't have to lift them far, once they've lost contact with the floor, they're pretty much at your mercy. But if you want to lift them off the mat, the most efficient spot to lift from is directly below or directly above their center of mass. And it's way more common to be below your opponent and pushing up than to be above your opponent trying to pull them up. Typically, if you're grappling and you find yourself above your opponent, then the takedown isn't something you're concerned about. But it does depend on the rule set. You can watch videos of Greco-Roman matches and see people like Alexander Karelin hoist other athletes off the mat from above. The experiment. It's super impressive, and this technique fits the criteria of the lift and dump, but it's not the sort of thing you expect to see in a jiu-jitsu match. Scary dude. My favorite lift and dump. Well, perhaps my favorite to get thrown by is the Ogoshi hip toss. Ogoshi! This is an iconic judo technique where the attacking player gets a strong underhook and they're looking to control their opponent's center of mass. So the underhooking hand is, is usually gripping low, either on the gi at the small of the back or even better, gripping onto the belt. And one way or another, the attacking player gets the defensive player moving forward, maybe a little open in their stance, and the offensive player launches the attack by stepping their leg, the one on the underhook side, uh -oh. across the center line. Uh-oh deep into the defensive player's stance and they're pivoting with their weight low, turning their back to the defensive player, which is super risky in jiu-jitsu. But if the technique is on point, the defensive player's forward momentum and the attacking player's low pivot bring the two centers of mass into line, one on top of the other, for a split second. And this is the moment where the attacking player elevates their hips, jacking the defensive Ooh, player off the mat. Going for a ride. And when I'm getting thrown, there's a weightlessness here and time kind of stretches out because everything is completely out of my control. I'm, I'm absolutely screwed, and there's this feeling of inevitability when the technique is executed well. Oh, you just got to go with it. And it's great with pure judo players because they're looking for that clean throw, and there's that bit of showmanship for the judges where they send you to the mat while they maintain their stance above you. And if you're on the receiving end, you don't have to brace for that like avalanche where a wrestler will come crashing down on you and grind you into the floor. Yeah, but some of those dudes are mean. A judo player is looking to spin your back to the mat and hear that solid crack as you slap out. Slap out. The most notable lift and dump sequences in wrestling happen with suplexes. 
the attacking player secures a body lock, and instead of controlling the defensive player's center of mass with an underhook and a belt grip, they've entirely encircled the defensive player's torso and clasped their hands. And there's no rush at this point. When the time is right, the attacking player will bring their hips in low and tight, positioning their own center of mass directly below their opponents before elevating the hapless grappler off the mat, taking them through the air, dumping them on the floor. Highlight reel. Some versions of the lift and dump are more devious, or maybe less obvious. One example is Tomonage, and that's uh, that sacrifice throw you sometimes see in action movies where the hero will somersault backwards and fling the villain through the window. Yeah. That's the lift and dump where the attacking player gets their opponent moving forward, drops down to their own back, posting with one leg or both legs on the defensive player's center of mass and taking them up and overhead. The fireman's carry? That's a lift and dump where a grappler will shoot underneath as their trailing arm pulls the opponent forward across the back of their shoulders. Fireman's! The attacking player's lead arm, hooking inside the leg and the trailing arm gripping at the shoulder, keeps the defensive player's center of mass in place as the attacking player gathers himself underneath and lifts them off the floor. So lift and dump. It's harder to pull off than the push and trip, but the results are glorious. So, whereas the best opportunities arise for push and trip takedowns when you're able to apply off-balancing forces, the best opportunities for lift and dump techniques arise when you're able to position your center of mass below your opponents. And depending on the attacking player's posture, some techniques can fall into either group. A wrestler can shoot in on a double leg, double leg, their hands chopping behind their opponent's knees, you know, their legs driving forward, torso positioned parallel to the mat, and they could be thinking about a strong push and trip technique. You know, they're driving their shoulder into their opponent's belly button, you know, creating that strong off-balancing force while their hands are reaching to block the legs from repositioning. Or the same wrestler might be thinking about a lift and dump, and their head will pop up. Bring your hips in, bring your hips in. They'll bring their hips in underneath, and their spine will get more vertical, and their hands will be less concerned with preventing the defensive player from repositioning, and more concerned with keeping their center of mass in place. Identical entries, but fundamentally different ways of taking down the opponent. All right, that's, that's interesting. So that's how I think about it. And as I progress and I gain more experience, especially in competition, I'm finding that it's very helpful to cut through the details, the minutia of specific techniques, and keep just a few basic concepts in mind. Basic. If this stuff makes sense to you intellectually, I'd recommend spending plenty of time on the feet, moving around with good training partners, not trying to hit specific techniques, but working on the push and trip fundamentals by moving each other around and tracking the weak access and pushing and pulling with non-committal trips, at least at first. Kazushi! You're trying to ingrain good habits in yourself. Kazushi! And loose, varied repetition with simple goals is, is more valuable than intensity for this sort of practice. You do this for a while, and then intentionally shift to working on lift and dumps. Moving each other around, ting turns, getting inside, gripping the center of mass. Elevate! Either with underhooks, Elevate. body locks, or high crotches, or whatever. Bring your hips in and elevating each other. And there's no need to actually take your partner to the floor. You know, you're not looking for specific techniques. Get your hips under. At some point, you will want to be training at full speed and finishing your techniques. At this stage, and really for the majority of your training time, you want to be building fluid, efficient movements. You want to be building habits that check the boxes for these two different takedowns. There are no other takedowns. There. 
I said it. He said it. If you want to take a standing opponent to the floor, no other takedown, it's either going to be a push and trip or a lift and dump. Those are your only options. There are no other takedowns. Ooh, definitive. All right, let's uh, let's round this episode out with a story from a match I saw. Oh, let's see, this was this was a couple years back, and it was at a it was at a local tournament here in New Hampshire. Um, I think it was Good Fight is the organization. They they put on uh, they put on great tournaments, and it comes through, and they do a sub only format with. It's not quite uh, Eddie Bravo tiebreaker rounds at the end, but there there are similar. You know, positional rounds after the regulation time, and uh, this was like I said, it's a local tournament. So there's a bunch of folks there from the gym. We got Team Link. the no gi people are there, the gi people are there, the MMA, MMA people showed up. Um, there's some family and friends. Like it's, it's one of the wonderful things about uh, local tournaments. There's you know, it's only half an hour, 45 minutes away. You get a nice uh, kind of group experience for the gym. So that's that's kind of the environment you know it's a crowded uh <laughs> it's like a crowded rec center um you know at the end of some long driveway and uh my matches were already over i can't i think you know i think i did well whatever but my matches were already over so i'm like in full-on like spectator slash like enthusiastic coach mode from the side although to be fair like i am definitely not a coach in this group like there's way better qualified people than me um but this match uh it was it was it was carrie kennison and she's uh she's a pro fighter she's with invicta now at the time she might have been with invicta at the time this was a couple years back um but you know she'd won a bunch of fights uh on the local scene and the local mma scene especially for women is not huge so um the the girl that she was matched up against um in this bracket was also an mma fighter and i wish i knew her name uh and i didn't know it at the time but uh i learned later that that carrie and her opponent you know they knew each other they'd never fought before uh in the cage but they were kind of circling each other in similar promotions coming up. You know, it, it's a small scene. So they, they were familiar with each other, um, but they had never actually rolled together or fought. And uh, so this was, this was kind of, there was a little bit of history between the two of them and some anticipation, because, you know, it's a small bracket. Uh, and this match starts and, uh, and MMA people... Uh, you know, they train hard and it was great to see them like throw down, you know, and it's, it's an exciting, there's, there's a lot of back and forth to it, uh, but there's no tap during regulation time, right? And so it goes into the tiebreaker rounds. And uh, if you're not familiar with, with Eddie Bravo's tournaments, uh, in the tiebreaker rounds, they start in a particular position with one person on offense and the other person on defense. And it, it starts, I think good fight mandates that you start in uh, the spiderweb position, like the armbar position, and then the, uh, the back mount position. And then I think they actually start to win a triangle, but I've never actually seen it go to the triangle. So um, they start off in the, in the armbar position and Carrie's on defense first, you know, she struggles, 
Maybe the other girl's on defense. I can't remember. Either way, both of them escape from the armbar position, right? That round is a wash. Um, the time that, that it takes to escape still matters, but uh, no one gets a tap. All right, the second tiebreaker round starts, and this one is on the back. So the ref switches him up. Carrie gets into the defensive position. The girl gets on her back, puts her hooks in, wraps up the seatbelt, and they go. And Carrie's struggling. She's, she's, she's doing everything she can to get out of this. The girl, I mean, they're well-matched. Both of them are very skilled. But the girl on her back crosses her ankles. And Carrie realizes it at some point, And she decides, fuck it. I'm going for this ankle lock. And she hooks the foot with the back of her knee. And she's putting pressure on the ankles, pressure on the ankles. And you can see the crowd is like, no way. This is, you know, it's one of those things that happens early on in, 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 your, in your grappling career. You get, you get taught not to cross your ankles because people will snatch up that, that little ankle lock. And it's not, it's not a high percentage move, but mostly that's because people learn to recognize it. It actually is a very effective, it puts a lot of pressure on a, on a relatively weak joint. And so Carrie's flexing and you can see the girl the, there's a realization in her mind like she's like she she you know she's pissed at herself for getting caught in this 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 rudimentary this white belt level stuff and she doesn't want to tap but carrie flexes into you know she pulls that leg back and she arches and eventually the girl taps and the crowd erupts you know the crowd you know everyone loves to see uh, a well-fought match come to a decisive conclusion and so the girl taps they untangle and Carrie gets her hand raised. You know, we're super stoked. The, the other girl, you know, they, everyone's mature about it. No one, no one's really upset. And uh, but people I don't I don't think most people in the crowd realized that something wonky had happened because the way the rule set works. One player, for those tiebreaker rounds, one player is placed in the offensive position and their goal is to control the opponent and get the tap. And the other player is placed in the defensive position and their goal is to escape, you know, not get tapped and escape. And Carrie, Carrie flipped the script. Carrie was in the defensive position and saw the opportunity and decided not to escape, decided to go for the submission and was successful, tapped the other girl, tapped her opponent. And, uh, you know, I don't know if those, uh, if that had ever been considered in the rule set. You know, I, I went back, I tend to read the rule sets before I go to these tournaments just for my own information. And that, that situation is not identified in, uh, in at least the rules that they post on their website. But in jujitsu, you know, the, the, the tap is king. And the ref made the right choice. You know, there's no need to go to a third tiebreaker round. Like, there was a distinct tap. And Carrie came away with the victory. It felt good for everybody. And it was a nice little quirk to kind of stick in my memory. And there's things that happen that, that rule sets can't, uh, don't anticipate. But in jiu-jitsu, the submission is king. And Carrie got the submission. So that's my story about scary Carrie Kennison and uh, winning in the tiebreaker rounds. Uh, so and you know ever since that match uh, I put a little put a little more respect on that that Hail Mary ankle lock and in one of the Danaher instructionals 
maybe it's his back attack. I can't remember which one. But in one of the Danaher instructionals on like a on a tangent, he demonstrates his his preferred method for nullifying that that ankle lock. Uh, so maybe we'll talk about that in a future episode. Um, but for now, that is my story uh, about scary Carrie Kennison and winning in the tiebreaker rounds. All right, it's time to wrap this thing up. My thanks and appreciation to you for listening to me prattle on. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I hope there were some kernels of goodness in there for you. And if you want to reach out to me and share, you know, any thoughts you might have about how I can improve these episodes or if there's stuff you'd like to hear me talk about in the future, please email me at the BJJ tap at gmail.com or you can go to my website thebjjtap.com click on the link that says email the podcast that's how you can get in touch with me also mad props mad appreciation to everyone who helped me put this thing together Uh, you know I know it's rough around the edges but I'm learning as I go alright take care folks thanks again for listening thank you very much have a great day